listening to Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, episode 371. My name is Casper, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, to discuss the fourth episode of NBC Peacock's adaptation of the classic Aldous Huxley novel, Brave New World. So, how you doing? Uh, good. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I missed out on the Casper thing. Oh, well, you know, I messaged you earlier in the week with a question about Xfinity, and you just ghosted me. Oh. So, uh, you know, I just thought it was appropriate, but you know, yeah. hey. You know. <laughs> I, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, that's I didn't mean okay. to. Like, I, I didn't know, like, the answer to your question right away, and then I forgot about it. Okay. So I apologize. <laughs> uh, no worries. Uh, it's one of those deals where, you know, I, I've mentioned in the past, I, I use a Roku on my main TV, and Right now, Roku is having a pissing match with uh, HBO Max, and apparently they're having it with Amazon as well. So, yes. well, it's, yeah, I don't know who the the quote unquote good guys or bad guys in, are on this one, but it's just it's it's ridiculous, right? It's, and it's pissing me off. All I'm, right, I'm near ready to just I'm I, I kind of blame HBO, like you know. Like if you're you're making it hard on people who have, you know, Roku and Amazon, which is most of the people out there who stream. Right. So a you're not getting to even close to the number of people you can be, and I'm going to cancel HBO because I'm I'm sick of this BS. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I hear you, and from the little I've read, you know, they're both to blame for sure, and and, and Amazon's in there as well, but. Uh, you know, look, a big surprise, it's about money. And I guess what's most disconcerting is that there's plenty of money for everybody. You know, right. come on. So, uh, you know, I keep getting these emails and things in the mail that with your Xfinity internet, we'll send you a free flex box, which is just another interface, just like a Roku box or, right. you know, whatever. And that's what I was asking you. I didn't know if you were using flex. I, I don't I don't know what that is. See, that's where I got confused. I don't I don't really know what that is. Okay. So I don't know if I do or I mean I just have like a Xfinity X one like router or whatever. Okay. So what got me to thinking that was you telling me that you just discovered that with your Xfinity internet comes NBC Peacock free. And I'm thinking, Well, with my Xfinity cable. Yeah, that's what I meant. What did I say? Yeah, you said internet. Oh, well, you know what? It's even with internet. So okay. you don't have, well, you must have them with your internet as well, well right? Well, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I have internet and cable okay. both. So, right. I, so I, I still assumed it's just with the cable. All right. Right. I still have direct TV for my TV, but I have Comcast for my internet. So anyway, I finally you know, signed up to get the box, figuring it's free. There's never going to be a charge. And if I can get NBC Peacock, but of course, like anything, it's like, well, it gets that and it gets HBO max, but it doesn't get this I'm like, uh, you know, so anyway, I right. just, but what does it not get? I think it was showtime, maybe stars. I, oh, I forget some other yeah. things that, that we definitely would it's watch. Just, and it's just a bunch of uh, like, I mean, I, I know that I've been kind of fun because it, it like I'm, I'm, I was figured okay, like August thirty first was the cutoff date. They're going to get a deal done. It's going to be eleventh hour. All of a sudden, we're going to find the guy deal done, and they didn't. 
Yeah. Just, and what that meant for people like me. So yeah, I get HBO through my, like through the, the Xfinity X1, whatever cable box, you know, HBO Max. So is not part of like, I can't get HBO Max through that. That's not an app available through my cable box. Now I can get it online. I can watch HBO Max on my laptop. But if I wanted to freaking watch TV on my laptop, I wouldn't have cable in the first place. So, there you, go. you know, it's, it's just, it's really, it's, it's very, very annoying. I actually was, had started watching Doom Patrol, but I'm like, I don't feel like watching Doom Patrol on my laptop. You know, I've got a, I bought this TV. It's a Roku TV. So it's not like an option, right? I don't, I can't say, well, I'm not going to go with Roku because my TV's a Roku TV. So I'm stuck with it. So I kind of got to back Roku in this, right? Just because I have no choice but to. Yeah. Well, you got to believe they'll get the deal done. So, uh, all right. Just one more quick rant on my end. And as we've said many times, we don't get political here. So this isn't really a political rant. It, it, it is direct at politicians though. And not, not only politicians, but a lot of these, and I'm making air quotes experts that CNN will have on from time to time, whether they're medical experts or political experts or whatever, dude, I get that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but when a 15-year-old high school student, and I'm talking about the young woman who took that famous photograph of the crowded hallway mm-hmm. in her Georgia high school, when she can come on CNN for several different nights, have crystal clear video, have crystal clear audio, she can figure out how to do it, but these freaking PhDs can't. And then today, when Congress is questioning the the postmaster the one congressman is asking his question remotely dude it's like he it's like garbled and okay i'm sitting there okay cut him off go to the next one cut him off a he couldn't figure out how to get a decent zoom connection and b the chairperson couldn't figure out cut the dude off and go to uh, they drive me freaking crazy and these are our, well they they're they're all kind of old probably so now, yeah, there's yeah, all I, new stuff I, I said to my wife don't say well they are you know what if they're too old to understand technology yeah. that is <laughs> ubiquitous isn't even a strong enough word yeah then they shouldn't be in office sorry they should yeah all right. No, my, I, I mean, I, I just, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, that's, that, that's, especially by now, like, yeah. okay, I could get, like, maybe back in March if you were having troubles with Zoom and everything, but, I mean, you probably had a chance to figure it out by this point, you know? Uh, all right, let's get on to something more fun, uh, what we're right. watching, so why don't you go first this time? Okay, well, so I'm going to say what my pick of the week is, and it's going to come with a quick, very quick, I promise, Dave, top five list, okay? Sounds good. So my pick of the week is The Runaways, which is a movie I had never seen uh, before. Awesome. Kristen Stewart, say no more. Go ahead. Yeah, and and she had more than one uh, facial expression. She uh, did? So that was, was good. Actually, I thought she was probably the best part 
of the she played Joan Jett. She was really good. Dakota Fanning, right? Was yeah, right. Played right. Uh, Sherry Curry, and so I mean the Runaways are a they are a rock and roll legend. They they are rock and roll legends, I should say. Um, you know, a group of teenagers who made it uh, pretty big as a kind of um, pseudo punk band. Uh, early stages of kind of like they were like a boy band except they didn't really try to look pretty or anything they just well i mean they kind of did but um you know they they actually but their music is actually good and uh cherry bomb is a all-time classic um but the the movie itself i I was not super thrilled about i just found it such I, i i thought it was too much of a cliche biopic and it didn't really i didn't think it got that deep into any characters except for Cherry Curry. Um, even Joan Jett, who's one of the, the you know, main architect of the Runaways, um, you know, I thought Kristen Stewart's character still kind of got short shrift. And, and Lita Ford, her, they, she, her character is barely in the, the movie at all. Like, yeah. what, the, what the hell? Yeah. So anyway, so this led me to think about the musical biopic in general. <clears throat> and what are what separates like the really good ones from the ones like the runaway that was acceptable it was good the good music the actors were really good um but just the story just kind of like just follows that same pattern right so which are some that are maybe a little bit different so this is my top five musical biopics and I, like I said, I'll, I'll go quickly. So number f- coming, and and obviously there's a ton out there. Um, like the Doors did not make the list. Uh, the Buddy Holly story didn't make the list, and those are two awesome movies, two great biopics. So, uh, so n- number five, we got Amadeus. Okay. So you know, going back to classical, and uh, I think actually that maybe did that win Best Picture. I know it's nominated for Best Picture. I can't remember what. It right. may have. I think F. Murray Abraham may have won for supporting actor. I'm not positive of that though. Right. So just a, a great movie, and especially uh, for people who obviously Mozart is a person people kind of maybe give this iconic status to and think of him as some kind of godlike figure, and to see him as a uh, you know you know boozing uh, and uh, slightly spoiled type of person was, was pretty good. So anyway, number four, you might not have seen this, but this, especially when I was in high school, is one of my absolute favorite movies is Crush Groove. And you might not, say, no. Wayne, Crush Groove, I don't feel is really a biopic. And I would come back at you and say, well, it definitely is. Um, it, 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 it has basically all the early Def Jam bands in it. It basically follows uh, this love triangle between... Um, the uh, run from Run DMC, um, his brother, I believe Russell Simmons is his name, and um, and Sheila E. So you get performances by Run DMC, by Sheila E., by the Fat Boys, by the Beastie Boys, by LL Cool J, um, and you know basically has all of these artists who back in the eighties were like the some of the the biggest artists around at the time and Def Jam Records was on top of the world. So while maybe not a straight up biopic, it's still a great movie. Lots of great music in it. Um, lots of fun. So if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend it. So number three is The Dirt. So I was thinking about The Dirt today and much like its subject matter, Motley Crue, The Dirt really 
has very little redeeming qualities to it, but that's what makes it great because it so perfectly encapsulates Motley Crue, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an awesome movie. It's so much fun. It's funny. There's a hilarious line in the middle of it, the, the guy from Saturday Night Live, about leaving your girlfriend with Motley Crue, why you shouldn't do it. Uh, one of the greatest all-time lines I think I've I've ever heard in any movie ever. So, um, But yeah, fantastic movie. Uh, number two is Straight Outta Compton, which is the, the story of NWA. Again, probably follows, this is probably the, out of all the ones on the list, that follows the typical rise and fall of a great band kind of cliche that you see in biopics because of the, the subject matter, because it's NWA. It's just amazing. Uh, the performances are great. Ice Cube's own son plays Ice Cube. Uh, is awesome. Number one is pretty much my all-time, one of my all-time favorite movies, period. Definitely my favorite biopic. And that is 24-Hour Party People. People out there, I know I've, it's been maybe a couple of years since I mentioned this movie, but if you haven't seen 24-Hour Party People, you need to go see 24-Hour Party People. You might want to do a quick Wikipedia if you're not familiar with the Happy Mondays and Joy Division especially, um, or the story of Factory Records uh, during the Manchester years of the late 80s, early 90s in England. But um, it, this movie is just incredible. It's uh, look, just like the dirt, so perfectly encapsulates its subjects you know just just amazing um which leads me that another movie that i thought the putting into that didn't make the cut was also control which uh, is the story about joy division but just focuses pretty much on um ian curtis uh, that was another uh one that i thought about putting in there but i figured i got I already have one movie in there that deals with factory records part a big part of which joy division is that's it that's my uh top five musical biopics Okay. Plus we got to bring up Kristen Stewart. So, yeah. All right. Um, for me, I've been binging season five of Lucifer because I had to write a review for each episode and where it started, Den of Geek said, well, just publish one a day. Well, if you have them ready, maybe you can publish two a day. Okay. Mm. Oh, and you know, we're, we're, we have statistics that people are searching for, lucifer and god and the actor do you think you could put something together about that oh and by the way if you could also put one together about the lucifer soundtrack that'd be awesome like you know i need i need to go back and learn how to say no but uh managed to knock them out so two more to publish the big money man you know yeah (laughs) but uh the show and i love lucifer so you know binging it was not that big a deal uh, and, and to be honest i had screeners so it wasn't like i had to watch them all in one sitting uh, but my wife and i just finished season one of a show called halt and catch fire oh yeah i saw netflix has that now and have i'd never seen it before it's uh you know one of those things that i've seen it listed on netflix many times it's a series that goes inside the nascent personal computer industry in 1983 which is when it starts follows this fictional company that really gets talked into making its own 
personal computer, even though that wasn't what they specialized in. And, you know, they're playing among the big boys, IBM, Texas Instruments, Tandy, Apple ends up in there. It's got kind of a Mad Men vibe to it. It's, of course, it's not about advertising, but that inside an industry and you know the, the fact that it's not all uh, pretty the way maybe outsiders would think, but we're both really liking it. Got finished season one last night, saw the first episode of season two. I believe there are four seasons, at least that's what's available on Netflix. So I'm looking forward to that and report back on it. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of good things about Halt and Catch Fire. Um, <clears throat> that was one I, I thought of watching when it was uh, actually on regular TV. I can't remember who ran it at first. I don't think it's a Netflix. I think AMC, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, that actually, a lot of people are saying good stuff about it. I don't feel like it. So, but now that it's on Netflix, um, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll check that out. Yeah, and for me, 42-minute episodes is right down my alley. So Right, right. All right, well, anyway, let's get to uh, the topic at hand, which is Brave New World, Episode 4, Season 1, titled Swallow, written by Allison Miller, directed by Craig Zisk, who also directed 103. And, you know, the title obviously can be taken literally and figuratively because John especially has to swallow the fact that This is going to be his life, maybe forever. And then, of course, we see him finally swallow his first Soma at the end of the episode. But I I really like how things are progressing. There'll be some things that we'll bring up tonight that deviate from the way they're presented in the book. And, And Fred, I know Fred has said he hasn't read the book. He did see some of the movies and he brings up some of the things and, and how they're presented differently. And you've mentioned several times that Linda played by Demi Moore. Well, the fact that she's played by Demi Moore doesn't really address the reality of the novel and Linda's mm-hmm. appearance. And right. as Fred points out, she doesn't make it back to new London because she dies on the rocket. But you know, it's funny because she s- still s- serves basically the same narrative purpose though yes you know yeah and and i don't think you have a problem as i don't with the changes they're making to huxley's novel because they're not messing with the fundamental tone of the novel or the fundamental thematic ideas that that huxley's trying to get across so that's fine you know almost a hundred years have passed Right. So true. Yeah, yeah. It was like nineteen thirty one, right? Yeah. Wow. So but, well before we get too far, I just want to say that, that Peacock, you know, it puts up the ratings for each show. And this show was rated W for Wayne as it included language, nudity, sex, and violence. Nice. Well, yeah, one I of mean, the- that's like that's the trifecta. That's that's got it all. Well, I'll just, as an aside, one of the things uh, I've mentioned many times, I'm really into a lot of the international procedural crime shows and a lot of the international shows in general, but especially the crime shows at the beginning, they put up, you know, the little violence, nudity. And my wife always says, ah, nudity. I'm like, nah, I'm not falling for it. Nudity now is the dead body on 
the metal table at the coroner's office. Right. That's nudity. Yeah. I'm like, or sometimes no. they show like a guy's butt and that's nudity. I'm like, dang. Yeah. I see, no. see that. I'm like, I bet you that's what they're counting as a nudity. Yeah. So sure cool. enough. But, uh, but you know, in, in this episode, obviously John finds himself in an unfamiliar world. Lenina finds herself in a familiar world that feels unfamiliar. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Bernard is back in a familiar world. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to say about all three. And, you know, l- let's go ahead and talk about John first, because, okay. you know, that opening scene where we're witnessing him grieving over his mother's dead body. And that was one of my wife's big concerns coming out of episode three. Is he going to get to see his mother? And, yeah, of course, at that point, I, we didn't really know. I mean, that's not the way it works out in the novel. And that conversation that Mond is having with the director, there was once a thing called God, but director expressing concerns that John's not going to be able to integrate into their world and be accepted by the social body. And of course we've speculated that, well, maybe he's John's father. And of course we get, uh, you know, validation of that. Well, but I mean, we read the novel, so we knew he was John's father. Yes, right, right, exactly. But it was certainly interesting the way that plays out, and we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. But I, I love her character. I love the fact that um, you know they, they've shifted to a female playing you know a character that was male in the novel, and it's seamless. It doesn't matter, right? And, and maybe that's a testament to this society, this social body where gender doesn't seem to really matter anymore. Right. I mean. Right. If Franny comes in, she's going to give Lenina a little tickle. Yeah. And, yeah, you know. That's all right. They're just we're friends. Good friends. A little tickle. Nothing bad. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and and you know she says no, not now. I'm not into it. And then I turned to my wife and said, I'm always into it. Don't don't yeah. worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about that. Um, yeah. But uh, the fact that she wants Bernard to help John adjust, I, I think, is great. And uh, you know, the, Bernard is such an interesting character. And and yeah, I, I said we'll get to him in a little bit. It's just kind of hard with this episode because of the interplay with, with all three of these characters at, at, at this point but it's my job to help you no one is alone and and of course that whole idea of of loneliness as you know something that's frowned upon and I, I forget who it is that says it I don't know if it's Franny or if it's Lenina that says it uh, kind of in a sarcastic way that, you know, if you're unhappy, it's because you choose to be unhappy. And, right. uh, you know, obviously we're in a society for real where depression is a very real situation for right. just so many people. And to say, look, you just need to snap out of it. Well, that's not fair, obviously. Yeah. Uh, There's kind of one big way. I get why they did it. Why the where the novel and the show diverge is in the novel. Um, there's people literally are everyone is literally happy with their place. There's no unhappiness anywhere because people are conditioned 
before they're even born, their embryos are genetically engineered so that they have just enough intelligence to do whatever their their job is. And then they are, you know, socially conditioned once as when they're children and through their adulthood. So, you know, literally there's very few people in the world and Bernard actually is one of those people who is not content. Uh, Lenina in the novel is completely content. The, she just gets bugged out when John won't sleep with her and she wants to, and she doesn't understand why he won't. So, you know, but in, in the, 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 to the show, you know, obviously that's not the case. We, we've actually haven't really seen, we, we do see, a scene here where Lenina is engineering an embryo somehow to make it an alpha negative or alpha minus, I guess would say. And, and we see them doing like the social conditioning with the kids, but clearly Lenina herself is a pretty prime example that, that the, there, there, there is discontent in this world. See Jack 60 is another example that there's, discontent um bernard not so much now but before he went was an example that so there are people in in this brave new world that are not conditioned to be 100 percent accepting and happy with their role in life right and we've talked about the fact that the word on the street is that bernard's not really an alpha plus that there was something that that went askew when he was being um created and you know we see the scene that you just mentioned where lenina is supposed to inject the embryo at a certain point and they make a big deal of that in the novel with the conveyor belts and Mm -hmm. that at at 17 meters this is done to it at 90 meters this is done to it and and they know exactly what that will do uh, of course to the the child that will ultimately be born but right, because the, the the embryo is on a conveyor belt for nine months, right? right? So they know exactly like physically how much distance it should travel before, which also coincides precisely with how much time has passed for now something to be done. Like you know, my my favorite is I, I think this is maybe epsilons that they that they train to work on planes while they're in flight, so the embryos get like turned upside down like i don't that didn't seem like that's actual science but still you know you get an idea of how before these people are even born they are completely conditioned to be perfect for their their role in society right they're comfortable in an inverted position right because that's what their job is going to be but the thing with john trying to integrate into this society and we've already seen that he is you know apparently an alpha himself alpha exotic uh, i believe is a designation so is that better than alpha plus i mean you know we we've seen john a little bit and to say he seems like a smart guy i'm not sure we really have enough information to unequivocally say that but now that he's here and you know bernard finds you know the optic interface that he knocked out of that beta's hand and then 
the director uh, left his on his desk and Bernard's, oh, they're the same. And uh, of course, at this point, you know, we're, we're thinking, all right, Bernard, have you made the connection? And it seems as if he has. I mean, again, Bernard's not stupid, but right. uh, um, you know, but but following John's little progression, it, it's almost like he's on this fast track conveyor belt to get assimilated into the social body, and, and they've got that new London welcome video, which is <laughs> you know pretty pretty darn funny. Yeah, that's hilarious. But, right. But the whole idea of you don't need to be unhappy in this case, Bernard is is right. <laughs> you know, it, it, again, it's funny because that beta that comes in to fit him with the optic interface. Oh, is something wrong with him? No, well, he doesn't talk. Oh no, he talks. He's just choosing not to, and it, it's just really hilarious because it, it, it's like the adult letting the child know. You can throw your temper tantrum or hold your breath until you turn blue as long as you want, you know, because yeah. that's the way it seems to Bernard. And truth be told, that's the way it seems to us, I think, as well, because what does John gain by this attitude? He knows he can't go back. He says as much. Right. So, well, okay, you say you can't go back and you're pissing on everybody that's trying to integrate you into the society well what do you want then yeah well, I, I don't think john i think part of it john just doesn't know what what he wants at at this point you and know? that's understandable of course so his mother just died for crying out loud we get right. that i mean so i don't mean to be that hard on him but still um you know he's witnessed a lot in in the last 24 to 48 hours there there's no question his world has been turned upside down for sure he's kind of a rock star and whether he notices that or not as he walks through the hall uh, is unclear but you know you mentioned c jack 60 and he's certainly cognizant enough to know you know what i need to fall in with this group that seems to be wearing the same kind of clothing i'm wearing and and again, my wife was saying, well, you know, is he with Epsilons? Is, the, is that a dining hall full of Epsilons? And, you know, I'm not sure. Obviously, the table with the C-Jacks, they're Epsilons. But you hear the conversations going on at some of the other tables led me to think, well, maybe they're Deltas or, you know, something a bit higher. But I don't know. Would they have them all eating together, the, the different levels yeah, i don't know I, I just kind of assumed that they were all epsilons because um they because of the, the lockstep way that they went to the the cafeteria you know, right like marching in perfect unison and everything uh, plus there's you know in in the novel there is this scene where john gets up i believe it's a bunch of epsilons are eating he gets up, delivers this impassioned speech about freedom and individuality, and basically they're like, "Can you please leave?" You know, like they kind of shuffle him out and everything. And, and you know that because there's a big theme in the novel is this, this um, you know, inability for any kind of individual individuality to to crack 
this society, right? We talked about the people being perfectly conditioned. So there isn't any Epsilon like C-Jack 60 who's like, hmm, what is this you're saying? You know, no, they're, they're like, but of course here, I, I like how, you know, you're, if you've read the novel, you're almost like, oh, is here's the scene. It's coming a little early than before, but that's fine. Seems like this is going to be his big dramatic speech, but this isn't that John, right? This John is not the guy to get up on top of a table to try and lead some kind of revolution, right? He's just a, a regular, basically, kid who's had a very traumatic 48 hours and uh, is just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah, and he may grow into that person that stands on the table. And again, we get that scene later when he ends up at the Feelys and is freaked out by the orgy that's taking place and starts climbing the tower. <laughs> but of course there he's, he's screaming for help. So again, come on, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll get with the program hopefully. Sure. But, but uh, the, the other thing when he sits down with the sea jacks and to say we immediately recognize sea jack 60, well, that would be a bit disingenuous because I don't want to say they all look the same. Again, in the novel, there's a section where they explain, I think it's called Bokanism or something, but it's Bogdanovsky. a genetic. Yeah, right, right. There's a genetic process where they can duplicate an embryo only a certain number of times. I forget what the number is now. But, right. but with the Bokanovsky process, they can do it like a ton of times. But they yeah, just but, use that for like the epsilon. So. Right, but it's still finite. So, so, you know, we're, you know, they're not really cloning them, but I mean, it's sort of, but not really, but anyway, uh, but then we see that C the C Jack 60 has that piece of metal that we remember from a prior episode. Again, I love the fact that he recognizes that you're lost, but even more so than that, he recognizes that John's probably hungry. And when he pushes at his tray, and gives it to John. I mean, it, it sends a lot of different messages. We, we've seen and maybe we've been conditioned to see Epsilons as, you know, these mere robotic characters who are there to do the dirty jobs. I mean, when he when Bernard cr- uh, trashes that one test tube with the drink in it, you see those two Epsilons scurry <laughs> right away to sweep it up. Yeah. And, and again, it's kind of funny, but it it really drives home the point that that's their life. So right. when he pushes that tray with his food and you know, his food, it's just a bunch of squares of something. And you see John looking at it and I got my notes. It's like, well, he's either really hungry. Or, well, you see, he, he just tried like a little bit at first and then it looked like it's pretty good. Cause then he just shoved the whole cube in his mouth. So, right. Right. And, you know, then, you know, you mentioned about them all marching in lockstep. When the director comes in, they all get up, they all march out in lockstep. And I was a little surprised John didn't try to sneak out, but I I guess he figures, look, I'm going to get this over with. And he has his confrontation, you know, with the director who, you know, really tells him you don't belong here. And you know, we're wondering at this point, okay, well, where is this going to go? And of course we know that the reason the director doesn't want him there is completely self-serving because 
father bad. Yeah, but you know, I actually, you know, I, I know that that is probably the most obvious explanation. But when he's talking to John, I also felt, well, yeah, this does this is self serving, but also he is kind of looking out for John's best interest too, to to his mind, right? That obviously he just wants to get John out of there because it's an embarrassment to him. Um, will be even more of an embarrassment when ultimately people figure out that he's his father. Also, part of it is like, you don't belong here, right? Like, and and that's true. Like, John doesn't. I'm not saying I don't, I don't, is that the, I don't think he'll he has any chance that he has no chance of integrating into the social body or whatever. But I think his perspective of the world is just so vastly different than. Than Bernard's, for example, you know, he'll, he'll, I don't think he'll ever come to accept that sleeping with whoever and taking soma all the time is the way to go. You know. Okay. Well, I, I I see where you're headed with that, and when the director says there's more beyond the barrier than you can imagine, I I, I don't know that I can see he sees that as an opportunity for his son to discover himself. And, and like you said, you know, can John integrate smoothly into the social body? I guess smoothly is, you know, a relative term, but Bernard and his knowledge of the savage lands, I don't think is any more complete than John's knowledge of new London would be. And, yeah, and look what happened to him. Well, yeah, but I guess I just think that if John can have an open mind about where he is and what the benefits are. I mean, this is something his mother has told him about his entire life. Of course, right. he thought she was a crackpot. And now that he sees that what she was saying was real, and it's not that they didn't know about New London, but we wonder how much did they really know? And, right. you know, we don't necessarily get a sense of that. But I, again, I love that that line when the director says, well, you know, there are no mothers, fathers in New London. Well, there are now. Right. And, and it, it, that's almost maybe the catalyst that forces the director to make that decision. All right. This isn't going to work out over the cliff with you boy well i don't think he's trying to throw him over the cliff i think he's trying to get him on that the uh what they call him the fliver yeah um you know and um you know john resists and and so that you know sends the the director over the edge um literally over the edge not just he, not that he got super mad at me he fell and died uh you know, even re on, on rewatch i was just not I should just say, I, I, I definitely think that the, the character's main motivations were self-serving, but I think also there's this level there of, as your father, I'm trying to tell you what is best for you, what I think is best for you, and what will make you the happiest, you know? Because, um, you know, because he, he doesn't think there's any chance of John finding happiness in, in new London. Well, you know, the, the thing that strikes me as you say that we know 
he's been designated as alpha exotic, or at least his eye is, as the beta tells right. Bernard, and that alpha exotics are exceedingly rare. So does the director know what level John actually is? I mean, we don't see whether he does, but it does seem as if the director knows all, see all, sees all, along with uh, Mustafa Mann. But again, you know, we don't really know that. But you know, as you said, he pushes him over the edge, literally and figuratively, which then you know leads to that scene in the feelies, and it's so easy to criticize Bernard, and. And rightly so for a lot of the things, especially his dealings with Lenina, where she wants to talk and he just wants to get back to life as he knows it in New London. Yet, when he realizes Bernard, uh, when he realizes John is in trouble, I don't think he rushes to help him simply because he's been ordered to. Right. I think it's that connection that's still there, even though he doesn't realize it from the savage lands that just is leading him to help another human being. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can see that, uh, I mean, John is terrified. You see the look on his face and Bernard comes over and basically saves him that th this, this is, um, <clears throat> what we wouldn't expect from Bernard is for him to do something. I like how Bernard has turned out now because, you know, like it's funny how Bernard is, kind of follows the same arc so far as the character in the novel does, where at first we like him because he's an outcast and he's he, he sees things differently than other people. But then he comes back from the Brave New World and experiences some celebrity and becomes an a-hole, right? Because he's, uh, you know, we realize his, his bitterness and, and everything was just from the fact that he, he wasn't accepted. And the minute he becomes kind of a celebrity... All of a sudden, he, he turns into a jerk. And he's not, you know, I don't know if we quite see that, but we could certainly see that one scene where he uh, <clears throat> he sees Henry Foster going by in the hall, and he leaves John to run out to boast to Henry how he drove an auto car, you know? So we're definitely getting some glimpses of, of Bernard turning into the guy uh, that he is in the novel as well. Yeah, and, and you know, this is really the final scene in the episode when when you know, Bernard talks John down and, and John allows himself to be helped and, in fact, takes his first Soma as the song Drugs Are Better With Friends yeah. plays over the, that scene and then over the credits. And it's, yeah, well, <laughs> that was just perfect. But, you know, the whole thing about, you know, Bernard is that he really is changing, even though he's determined to get back into his prior life. And, you know, he's ready to get physical with the director. I mean, we see that great scene where he's practicing what he's going to say and he goes into the director's office and he starts talking. And of course the director's not there, yeah. but, but later, you know, he's talking to the director who I guess insults him one too many times. He's ready to get physical and the director just disappears. And we realize, Oh, it was just a hologram. It doesn't take away from the fact that Bernard was ready to stand up for himself. And I think we see that scene and it's, and it's almost easy to see it as a throwaway scene when Lenina smacks Franny's hand away. Mm -hmm. 
And, I, you know, I think it's that violence doesn't exist in this society. Right. There have been some studies about television shows and violence on TV. And, you know, that is an act of violence, even though a lot of people would say, oh, that's not what they meant. But it is. And I think the fact that Bernard is ready to get physical with the director speaks to the changes that he doesn't really want to admit that that maybe are taking place with him. Right. I think he's got to check his levels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> My levels are fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this, that's when he discovers that the director, oh, so, you know, who, who who's being private now? <laughs> and he, right. You know, and, he, and that's, um, you know, again, I, I apologize for bringing in the novel more this time, but, you know, that's his, that's why he, he brings John to New London in the novel is because he figures out that the director is is John's father. So he brings Linda and John there for the sole purpose of embarrassing the director, which he does. And then the, the director is out of the story because he, he leaves, he, he goes in exile somewhere because he's so humiliated uh, by Linda and John and people knowing he's a father. So again, while the show is kind of going about a different way it's still like the same narrative device where you know bernard he, he never actually he bernard's not the agent that brings about the director's downfall but it's still the same thing where bernard has something on him he does use he try he's out there to spread that dirt he goes straight to henry to spread this the, the dirt he has on the director and then ultimately the director is out of the picture very early on, just like in, in the novel. So oh, f- yeah. fun fact about the director. Do you know who his dad is? The actor? I, I don't, but I know the actor I've mentioned before. He he was in a show called Nightfall where he played, uh, I believe it was King Philip of France. Philip IV, but- yeah. Uh, he's Tom Stoppard's kid. Oh, right. Oh, I shouldn't say kid necessarily now, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, his dad wrote. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Oh. And uh, Shakespeare in Love. All right, cool. You, you know, you mentioned Henry Foster, and until this episode and these scenes, we've really just seen Henry as Lenina's boy toy and the fact that they were seeing too much of each other to the exclusion of uh, other people. But now we, we certainly get the sense that he is Bernard's superior, even though, I mean, what's above an alpha plus? Well, I, I don't know. But, you know, you know, as you said. Yeah. An alpha you know, plus who doesn't have rumors of not being an alpha plus, uh, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I know you don't mean to be destabilizing. Yeah. And, and again, he was privy to the knowledge that, no, no, you were, you were sent to Savage Lands kind of uh, to be exiled. And you knew? Yeah, dude. Yeah, I knew. Yeah, everybody um, knew. Come on. Right. But I, I guess one of the big, I don't want to call it a reveal, but but certainly one of the big plot points of this episode is the recognition by Mond that Indra is testing the social body. And again, it's, dude, Skynet. So right. what? 
is the purpose of this test? And at first, we're wondering, well, is Bernard being tested? Is John being tested? It's, we get the idea that it's the social body that's being tested. How are you going to respond? I said the same thing. Oh, well, if John's not being tested, who is? And then she, she says something that it's clear that that society is being tested. By yeah. putting John out there, it's testing the resilience of the society itself. Right. This is our test and we will pass. And suddenly right. you've just become important. And again, what a great thing to say to Bernard at this moment. It really is something he needs. And, you know, whether he'll you know, be up to the task, I guess we will see. But I, I think the most fascinating character for me in all of this, though, is Lenina, who finds herself back in mm-hmm. this familiar world that feels extremely unfamiliar. And, you know, you, you mentioned the scene with Franny in her bed. And, and while it certainly is titillating on one level, it really does speak to her dissatisfaction with everything in new London. And I mean, we knew the events in Savage land had a huge impact on her. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we thought it would be this much. Why doesn't she just take a Soma and get over it? And, and we see her take Soma throughout the course of the episode. Now, mm-hmm. maybe she's not taking enough. Maybe she's not taking the right colors. We, you know, we don't know that, but I, I think for a beta plus, you know, I mean, this whole idea that she's questioning her reality is, is pretty amazing, you know? Yeah. And, and while we might say the same about C Jack 60, at his level he's doing the same thing so yeah where this is gonna go but the other thing that franny mentions as they're watching the young kids uh, be conditioned with uh, you know electric cattle prods or whatever they are is that apparently lenina was sort of uh you know she's always kind of like this yeah yeah that that franny even says you know i thought you enjoyed the electroshocks as a kid because you were just always doing something that would get you disciplined. So, yeah, suggesting that she was kind of always like like wandering off in her own mind, you know. Yeah. This solipsism that is so anathema to this uh to the society. So so yeah, I mean Lenina has uh, you know clearly been uh, a little different all you know her whole life. And again, like she is counter to what this society is meant to bring out. You know, there's not supposed to be anyone like Lenina or C Jack Sixty, right? There's right. not everyone's supposed to be happy all the time. Uh, but obviously not the case. Human nature will ultimately and, and that was you would think that Huxley would make that his one of his things, but his his theme was actually the opposite. It is you know, human nature does not revolt against us. Human nature is oftentimes very comfortable with falling in line and walking to the cafeteria in lockstep, right? That it's um, the, the the people who who rail against this uh, are oftentimes the people who just end up unhappy, right? And you know, we already talked about that act of rebellion that we see on the assembly line. 
and and of course you know the alarm bells go off so everybody knows what she didn't do at that point but then she goes to talk to bernard about their experiences and and of course he just wants to forget and move on it's like a piece of me got stuck there she tells him and and i love the fact that that they both understand that there was a possibility if we had never left that hotel room, mm-hmm. what might our lives have turned out? And we probably both would have been killed. Well, well, that's true. Yeah, I mean that that certainly is true. But actually, maybe not because they said that we would have just, you know, gone back. Like I guess maybe it's just the people who went to, you know, the house of monogamy were the only ones that got killed. I guess. Right, but you know, again, even if they had made that decision and ended up getting killed, that's still a decision that they would have made to stay there and be monogamous, right. as, as right. they had said earlier. You know, everything's changed to her, and she says, "Don't be an alpha; just be Bernard." And she just yeah. wants a friend to listen to her. And then I love when she says, "You know, I liked you better there." Right. Um, so right. because he he was different there. He he was. The guy who said, "Let's be monogamous. Let's wait before we have sex. Let's let's right. delay that." You know, so yeah, he was, you know, much different there. But but yeah, you see how quickly once he gets back in society, how he just like you said, he just wants to be the same as before. He right. wants every you know, he just wants to reintegrate. He wants to forget about everything. What what stays? What happens in Savage Land stays in Savage Land, basically. Well, you know? or, or, or does it? Because she's lying on her bed. She gets up and he, she opens the pack of clothes labeled Savage One, and we quickly learn that okay, these are John's clothes. And I'm I'm so glad they didn't take advantage of the obvious trope. She she first pulls out his white T-shirt, which is covered in blood at this point. And I kept thinking, no, don't put it up to your nose and smell it. <laughs> and she doesn't. She right, doesn't. She right. sets it down and she goes for the Walkman and, and mm-hmm. turns it on. And what an amazing scene. I assume that was Neil Young. I Yeah, it was um, Natural Beauty by Neil Young. Okay, which I assume is a fairly recent because one of the lyrics has the word digital in it. And uh, he wouldn't have been singing about digital back in the 70s for sure. Yeah. No, it, it, you know what? I, I, my son actually got this app on my phone called Shazam, and so whenever like a song is playing, I just pull up my phone, hit Shazam, and it'll tell me what the artist and the name of the song. Yep, it's amazing. Yep. So yeah, I just have it whenever I watch Brave New World. I just have it right there by my side because they have a lot of good music in this show, but not a lot of music that I've heard before. Yeah, fortunately, I'm not covering it for Den of Geek. So I don't have to write a story about. I had to, dude. I had to like list every song that was in every episode. Wow! And talk and just briefly talk about what was going on in the scene. I'm like, oh. Anyway, um, do you just go to like Reddit and find something? Someone there must have listened. <laughs> okay, um, I know nothing. And then she goes to have sex with Henry. And and it's clear she's simply trying to get back to her old way of life, even though she knows she can never truly return. It's it's almost like it's her test. I mean, we heard about Mon's Indra test for the social body. Well, this is Lenina's test. And I don't know if we're going to see 
how their sexual encounter turns out, my guess would be they get started and she says, no, nah, I'm not into it. I'm leaving. And yeah. Well, yeah. It, it seems like as long as Henry's just the same as he was before, you know, that, that's the, the thing that's so, uh, um, that's notable about this is she's like, you know, I want you to be the same, you know? Right. So like, so now she's starting to think that maybe if I just tr- try a little harder to be like everybody else, it'll work out. You know, if, if I try to be the same and just have sex with the same, you know, the same way or doing things I'm supposed to be doing, you know, so it seems like she's here. It's like this kind of like, or like kind of almost a desperate attempt for her to, you know, try and figure out a way to get through her discontent. You know, like, like anyone who feels like upset or depressed or anxious because they look at everyone else and they can't understand why everyone else acts the way they do and and why they can't see the world like 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 I do or like the person does you know that that ultimately that the person at some point I think well maybe it's just me there's something wrong with me everyone else seems pretty happy I'm the why am I not you know and that's got adds that extra level of of frustration to the whole thing and and anxiety to it because you know you're you're upset with yourself that you're that for some reason you can't be happy like everyone else and that's just the, this how this this it just creates this kind of like cycle um you know and I'm not any kind of expert on anxiety though obviously as a teacher you, know, you see this a lot and you know it's important for kids who are suffering from depression anxiety or anyone really is to understand that they don't have to be like everybody else but but you can understand that that desire too you know like maybe if i just you know even though i might like guys maybe if i just go out and date a bunch of girls maybe if i have sex with girls then then i'll I'll like it and i won't have these feelings anymore that make me different from everyone else you know things like that so anyone who's ever been felt differently than everyone else has definitely gone through that and lanita is definitely going through that and now here's her attempt to kind of i'm just going to get out there and and do things like i'm supposed to and let's see if that clicks and, and i'll stop feeling different from everyone else all right got anything else you want to bring up I don't know. That was pretty big. Uh, I was going to say that was a great way to end. So, <laughs> um, no, I, I, I don't think. So. Well, uh, there, there, there was just one thing, and, and here's. I guess this is the line that the, the the director says that kind of made me think that it wasn't a hundred percent selfishness for why he was trying to get John to leap. He says, "What they've done to you is unconscionable. What they will do." You can't imagine. So to me, I like I heard that line like, damn, you know? That that doesn't sound like someone who's just trying to get someone out of here because he selfishly wants him out of the way. You know, it sounds actually a little bit like a person who does have some level of empathy for this person. And it's trying to do what he thinks is best for that person. Okay. See, I guess I go the other way that uh, it's almost a scare tactic, but I don't know. Yeah. No, like, like I said, I, I, I'm not saying that. It's just, for me, it's just each time that I watched it, 
I that line kind of made me stop and say, "Oh, hold on, you know." So anyway, all right. Well, let's hear what Fred's got for us this week, and we'll be right back. Hello, Dave and Wayne, and all listeners to Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Brave New World season one, episode four. First off, in the topic, what are we watching? In the last one and a half, two weeks, I watched Pearson with Gina Torres, which we, of course, know from several things, and most importantly, of course, from Firefly. It is a spin-off of the series Suits. I did watch Suits, but got stuck halfway the series. My wife did watch on, and I still want to finish that. I really like this Pearson series. It's a pity it only got one season. But if you like Suits, even this one season is certainly worthwhile. Okay, about Brave New World Episode 4. I found it very striking in the cold open that Bernard says to John, who is grieving at the dead body of his mother, I understand John. Well, he understands shit. Because he just thinks that he is burdened by these feelings and wonders which kind of color soma he has to give John. I was a little bit amazed by the death of the director. So John throws him down the cliff. I don't think we saw a... A shot of him lying death down there. So if the director is really death, I don't know. But World Controller Month later says that he's dead. So let's assume he is. This is quite different from the two television movies. And so I assume also from the book. In the two television movies, the director is actually after John, Lenina and Bernard, the most important extra character. I actually think he has a more important role than Bernard in those television movies. Here he is killed off quite soon. And didn't have any important role actually in the first three episodes. Last podcast I was wondering how the show would reveal that the director is John's father. Because in the two television movies, Linda tells John that later. And Linda survives longer in New London than here. Because here she already died on the plane. But the father-son question is actually quite quickly resolved in this series. Doesn't remain a question or mystery. Nice was that... At about 15 minutes into the episode, the director says to Bernard, I thought if I would throw you down the precipice, somehow you would find a way not to hit the water. This is of course a very nice link to what later happens to the director himself. Interesting at the end of that World Controller Month says to Bernard, Indra wants to have us test it. So... It's not the other way around that John is tested whether he could fit in into the Brave New World, New London society. It's a kind of stress-strain testing. World Controller Mond also says that they will pass the test. Well, I really wonder where this series will go in the sense of that this society will pass the test or that John's visit to this society will really stir up things destabilize things. I think this story is at a very interesting point. To start with is that when 
the director addresses John in the big Epsilon dining hall. He says, we want the same. Yeah, John wants to get out. Well, that's what the director thinks. And the director wants him out so that he is not or will not get in a compromised situation, being the father of this savage. At the end, John decides not to go back to the savage lands. And he accepts a soma pill from Bernard. So is John going to try to fit in, stay there, take his soma, or did he only take this soma once because of his grief? And what will be interesting is if Lenina is going to connect to John, because she cannot connect to Bernard. She says to Bernard when she comes to him for help, don't be such an alpha, just be Bernard. Another interesting thing is whether Bernard is also a part of the stress test because he is an alpha plus that doesn't fit in and if you do a stress test and you get a savage into New London and you couple to him a mentor that's not fitting in as well, will this become then an extra challenging stress test? So I have the faint impression that Controller Mund is specially picking Bernard as John's mentor. So not as main reason that Bernard already knows John, but as main reason that Bernard is also not fully fitting in this society where everybody is so-called happy. How happy would they be without Soma, for instance? My last question is a world-building question. When the director falls down that cliff, you see that New London is built of a kind of plateaus, something like that. And what you see below there, is that old London? Is this all abandoned or are there people living there? Okay, that was all for now. Liking the series a lot. Looking forward to the next episode and your next podcast. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. There are... Just two things I want to bring up about Fred's feedback. I mean, you know, some of the things we talked about already, but you know, that whole idea about the social body being tested. Why? Why does Indra want to test the social body with this uh, outsider who's come in to influence the activities, the lifestyle? Is it to see if the social body is strong enough to weather this disruption or not will john you know promote all of his savage ideas and will suddenly the social body break down seems very hard to believe that one person could do all that but maybe it's not one person maybe it's three true right right because right he's not the only discontented person that we've seen four cj 60 yep so Anyway, now the other thing he asks about New London, because we we get that great scene when the director goes over the cliff and it looks like they've, you can still see, I don't know if it's supposed to be the white cliffs of Dover. I don't know if there are other cliffs like that uh, in England, but they've clearly built other structures around that. I mean, the the white cliffs of Dover are not near London. I don't think so. Well, see, I don't know. But anyway, um, (laughs) He says that you can see old London, you know, through, you know, through those images. And, you know, I missed that, but I'll take Fred at his word there. So his question is old London abandoned 
or are people still living there? So I don't really have an answer. That would be really a cool thought if there's a new London and an old London. I guess I always looked at new London as simply old London with a facelift. But right. But I mean, well, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anyone living in old London. But it's funny because you know when you listen to like or you watch shows or, or read about like architecture, how. Like when Heinrich Schliemann found Troy, right? Like he just blasted through layers and layers to get to what he saw, thought as what the ultimate Troy. But he was like plowing through like history, you know, because they would just build, you know, like one town would be built and it would get probably, you know, ransacked and ravaged and burned to the ground. And so they'd build another town on top of that and that would get. You know, whatever something happened, and they build. So you just have each, you know, the cities being built one on top of each other, um, and you know, obviously, careful architects, architects, archaeologists are going to, you know, very carefully go one level at a time. But Schliemann just blasted, plowed through layers and layers, and it's frustrating because he he obviously was not an actual archaeologist; he was this you know kind of self-trained guy. And as much as it's awesome, he found Troy. Um, I think most archaeologists would you know, talk about him with not favorable, um, you know, in a not favorable tone nowadays. But um, but yeah, so so that's that's a thing. Like you know, just one city build another. So that if that's old London there, um, which you know London is not on the coast though, as you said. So if it is Dover, then that can't be London because London and Dover are not anywhere near each other. Dover is on the coast. London is on the interior. It is on a river. You know, maybe that's the Thames now that, but you know, it doesn't, I guess now being clean would, would, you know, kind of, uh, make it, uh, seem like that was why we would maybe think it's not the Thames river. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, so I'm not sure. I didn't get a good enough look at it and I didn't, you know, with Peacock, yeah, I go through and I probably have to watch the whole freaking episode again just to get to that last scene, and uh, not worth it. So I, I, I don't know, but that I, I think that's if it is old London underneath and new London on top of it, that'd be very cool in in how like actual, um, you know, ancient cities are are kind of leveled out and everything. Yeah. And now you mentioned Thames, and now I'm thinking about Doctor Who. And all right, right. anyway. Um, all right. Anything else about Fred's feedback? No, I just like how he had uh, said that, you know, how he thought there might be something to um, them pairing up uh, Bernard with, with John, um, that maybe that's another part of this, you know, what he called the stress test. Uh, because you take a guy like Bernard, who's probably, and we've already seen he's pretty crap at keeping tabs on John because he lost him because he ran off to boast about you know, driving the car. So Bernard's probably not the greatest guy, but maybe it is because of the test and everything. So I like that thought. Okay, cool. All right, Fred, thank you. Great stuff. And look forward to what you've got for us next time. Grade wise, you know, I, I feel like on the one hand, it's easy to keep giving these a minuses. I know I'm not going any less than b plus but yeah i'm thinking b plus i you know especially 
I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I, I liked what was going on in the Savage Lands and the, you know, kind of the action and, and the intensity that was there. I know John's got to come back to New London. And that's the, the big part of this is his integration into it. But it's, it is kind of a, I think it's like a slight letdown. But it was still a very good episode, but just, you know, maybe not as emotionally intense as the, uh, the previous ones, because I mean, where I get and, and Alden Ehrenreich is a great actor, and his facial expression when B- Bernard comes to save him in the Feelies was awesome. You just look at him; he looks panicked and scared. It's great, but when you really think about it, like he's just freaked out because there's a bunch of people doing it all around him. Like, dude, what's the big deal? Come on, <laughs> you know, yeah. like this, this, this as as opposed to the the danger he faced in the uh, in the Savage Land, it doesn't quite uh, compare. Nope. So, all right. Well, we'll go B plus then. I, I think in a sense it, it feels like a setup episode, and there's oh, nothing yeah, wrong definitely. with a setup episode. Not at all. Nothing wrong with that. As long as they follow up on it. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and leave it there. That will do it for this episode of Sci Fi TV Rewatch. I want to thank you for joining us. Love to hear what you think about Brave New World. If you got any final thoughts on Dark, anything else going on in TV, encourage you to join the Facebook group. If you want to shoot us an email, it's sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. We'll be back next time to discuss episode five of the NBC Peacock dystopian classic Brave New World titled Firefall. But until then. You know, Dave, we had this argument last week, and, and I, I've been looking up I've been looking at a bunch of different sources. I've, I'll share them with you to, to show you. They're all legit. It's not just Wikipedia. But I am correct, Dave. Whales are real. <laughs>